We are starting, though, talking about taxes, in particular property taxes, and why the Mount Pleasant Business Improvement Association is calling on Vancouver City Council to take a look at how taxes are distributed and to perhaps shift that tax ratio. Neil Wiles is the executive director of the Mount Pleasant BIA and joins us on the line now. Neil, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. It's something that I know if you're a small business owner or any business owner, uh, you know all too well how much of the tax burden falls on your shoulders and on your business. What are you hoping, though, as far as uh, changes when it comes to how taxes are distributed in the city of Vancouver? Well, right now, um, and this I'm representing all of the BIAs in, uh, in Vancouver, not just the Mount Pleasant BIA um, on this issue, but... Uh, uh, the businesses are shouldering um, a larger uh, unfair burden of the tax uh, that the city that the city charges. Um, and last council session, uh, we saw a slight change, uh, and again, we're looking to continue that trend, um, especially uh, as we're we're being saddled with a nearly eleven percent uh, tax increase. And I know this talks about uh, shifting uh, some of the tax or, or changing the tax ratio. Uh, it's, it's never uh, something that's, that's uh, a clear-cut decision. There's always going to be uh, some who are for, some who are against. How much of the ratio, though, would you like to see changed? We're looking for uh, 2% uh, or half a percent each year over four years, which I think is uh, easing into it. It's very palatable for everyone to... To look at, but I think that the um, and it, the, the bigger issue is that the businesses are shouldering uh, over forty percent of the tax burden of the city of Vancouver, and yet they only occupy seven percent of the land. And in addition to that, we're also seeing um, extra things added on to the businesses. As a homeowner, uh, you don't you're not charged for water over and above your property taxes, or you're not charged for uh, garbage removal over and above your property taxes. As a homeowner, those are included as part of the package. As a business, those are not included. Um, and as I, when I was a small business owner, my water bill was in excess of $1,000 a month. Uh, I have a tiny little coffee shop as one of our members down the road, and they're paying in excess of $500 a month for garbage removal. They're tiny. Uh, so these things, you can quickly multiply by 12 and see how much they add up. And this is over and above uh, the property taxes, which are already about three and a half times the residential rate that the businesses are paying right now. Are you concerned at all, though, that, that would this not shift, though, if, if we shift even some of that tax ratio to residential, that, that there would be some pushback from, from homeowners saying, well, hold on a second, we're also looking at a double-digit property tax increase? Absolutely. <laughs> Believe me, nobody wants to pay more tax, right? That is, that is an absolute uh, truth. Um, but the amount... Uh, the, the impact of, and I, if I recall from the last time we went around with this, for an, for an average home, it was about 20 bucks. Uh, but for a business, it was in the $1,000 range. And that's a significant difference. And that's a significant impact on that small business. We're seeing an unhealthy vacancy rate across 21 of the 22 BIAs. There is only one 
BIA. And those are your sort of your, your high street, your busy sectors. Um, 21 of them uh, have an unhealthy vacancy rate right now. I think that they're, they're nearly 12% vacancy, um, which is huge. And this is not just a trend uh, that has happened since COVID. This has been a trend for the last decade or so. So this is, this is something that we need to see uh, changed um, because uh, people don't want to lose their small businesses, their sense of community, the places that they go to, the places that they work. No, uh, for sure. Nobody likes to see uh, a street with uh, the stores either empty or, or papered over and, and vacant, like you're saying. Uh, so, so what's happening with the one BIA, though? If, if 21 of the 22 have unhealthy vacancy rates, what, what is, why is that one uh, kind of looking like the outlier? Um, it's just, I think they have a, a, a 5% vacancy rate, and it just, just happens just to be where the numbers, uh, the numbers are falling. All right. Is it, is it's, it not, the, it's not any one thing that they're okay. doing uh, versus the other ones. It just happens to be like 21 out of 22 are are very, very high in vacancy. All right. It just seems it just seems odd that that one would is, is it location or types of businesses? It just seems strange that one would have such a, a different rate than the other ones. No, it's 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 not. There's nothing. There's not one thing we can sort of uh, point to. All right. Uh, when we look at the, the tax ratio, then again, and, and what the, the BIAs are asking for, I, I mean, there is the argument, though, or, or, or the question of, but these are businesses that are, are to be making money. There, there are, in many cases, successful businesses with profits, and that's why it's taxed differently than someone's residence. I agree. It is a business, but for every input, every input that the business is seeing uh, is increasing, increasing, increasing. Um, I mean, in, you know, in our daily lives, we can see that, right? That everything is going up, 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 um, including the taxes, including the rents, uh, and everything that this business buys, uh, including the, the labor markets, just everything. And eventually, um, you know, as we're seeing, uh, they're, you know, they're struggling to make it and, and, and lots aren't. Um, I, I, uh, I, I have a bunch of businesses on Broadway, and so the Broadway line is one of the things that I, uh, that I measure. And a few weeks ago, as I traveled the line from end to end, I counted 40 for lease signs. Yesterday, I drove it and I counted 47. Hmm. I don't know if I'm getting better at counting, <laughs> or there's, in a few weeks, there's seven more for lease signs up. And this is, this is an indicator of what's happening in all of your uh, high street areas. And and that one too, given the, the construction and what's happening along Broadway, and and you're right, nobody again wants to see more and more businesses and see that number going up. But do you get the impression that there are businesses that just they're not in it for the long haul? They're, they're they can't weather through uh, what is a very difficult time with that construction, and that the the idea is that things will bounce back once it's done. Or they're moving. Or they're moving. Right? A, yeah. Or they're moving. Surrey has a very favorable. Uh, business tax rate, um, and in a recent conversation, uh, their office vacancy numbers are decreasing because firms are moving out there. People who have offices, um, you know, are moving their businesses out there, either closer to their employees or just the, the very fact that they're paying less for their office space. 
Is it, Vancouver needs to remain competitive. It, for, for sure. And is it also, and I know we've talked about this in the past, it, is it also how uh, taxes are are um, are tabulated, how they're calculated. I know we've talked about uh, businesses and buildings taxed on best possible use uh, on on the triple lease, those types of things. Do we need to relook as well the formulas when it comes to taxing? Well, as you know, that so many of the businesses uh, in the city are taxed on the airspace above them. Um, Yes, that is a huge uh, thing that we need to look at. you know, you're looking at the potential. The province has, has recently changed. Uh, uh, Bill 28 has come out and there's been some changes in that. And the staff at the City of Vancouver have been awesome. They've pulled together uh, about 1,300 uh, properties that are sort of eligible for some relief. Um, but that relief only comes within the business community. Uh, we're not shifting uh, from, from business to residential side. So there's a bit of relief. Uh, for, let's say, a, a, a small single-story building. But that relief comes at the cost of something that's been built out. Right, okay. Uh, Neil, when are you hoping or are you hoping to, to get some direction back from council uh, response to you and, and the other BIAs coming together as a collective group asking for this? Well, this goes before council, I think, on the 25th. So we'll be there, uh, hopefully, en masse uh, to speak on this. Uh, and to get some support, uh, like I said, no one, you know, no one wants to pay uh, more taxes. Uh, but there is an inequity here, um, and this inequity is going to slowly erode at the number of businesses that we have in this city. And that's where you know that's where folks work, um, or who own these businesses. Both of my kids work in small businesses. You know, it's a it's a big it's a big impact. All right. Well, we will uh, be watching what happens up to uh, and during uh, this when it goes to council. Neil, as always, thanks so much for your time. Thanks for joining us today. My pleasure, Jill. Thanks for being with us on this Monday afternoon. Well, recently in Abbotsford, police have been called to home invasions, which are actually invasions where there are permitted licensed medical marijuana grow operations. And that has raised some questions about these licenses and what should be done about them in the future. Well, joining me to talk more about this is Abbotsford Chief of Police, Mike Sear. Thank you so much for being with us. You bet, Jill. Wanted to talk about this. We don't hear about as many of these calls, which is a good thing. But you put out some information earlier talking about how that uh, with the, we're talking about grow operations. And this was one particularly violent grow operation that happened. It was a home invasion on Bowman Road. Can you talk a little bit about what happened there? Yeah, I mean, in the last, you know, several months, almost six months, you know, the Fraser Valley has been plagued by a number of quite violent home invasions that are targeting uh, what we call personal and designated uh, marijuana grow operations. Um, and, you know, these are violent, a lot of times weapons, you know, in communities where, you know, we, we have concerns for the public and neighbours of these grow ops. Uh, and yet again, we had another one, as you, you just noted there. And, uh, you know, and I made a, a put a post out on social media that, you know, it's time and we've really been advocating to Health Canada that it's time that now that, you know, we're almost five years in the legalization of cannabis, that we reevaluate whether we really need to have these designated and personal medical license grows, you know, especially in neighborhoods and communities. 
Because in this case, is that what this was, that this was a, a medical marijuana grow operation? Because it sounds as well that the two people who were assaulted, they weren't even associated with the, that growing or that grow operation portion of this. Yeah, I mean, essentially all of the ones, I mean, it's it's well over 20 now that we've had over the past six months. You know, they are being targeted, these these medical grows. It will have hundreds of plants, whether it be in a, you know, kind of a more rural facility, a farm, or whether it be in a residential neighborhood. And typically, you know, these uh, individuals that are targeting these places are going in looking for money, um, and but the people who are tending to these grows, often not even the people who are, you know, licensed to, you know, run, but it's the people who are tending are, are typically the victims, you know, of quite a violent confrontation. So, you know, it, this is something that has been very concerning for us. Uh, you know, we're, we're working with other police jurisdictions to, you know, identify, you know, who's responsible, but it, it's very concerning. And, you know, I'm really calling for, you know, now is a time where we have enough, you know, retail market. People can grow four plants. You can buy online. Um, the, you know, it's time for Health Canada to reevaluate this medical regime. Are you surprised that we're seeing this or this level of violence? Because that was one of the, the selling points of legalization and the fact, like you said, that people can grow four plants on their own. They can access uh, cannabis from any number of retail stores, that those changes were kind of touted as something that would stop these types of invasions from happening. Yeah, you know, and Jill, it's it's interesting. So, you know, there used to be a lot of these on the, you know, brick-and-mortar retail stores where we'd see robberies. And for the most part, those have really started to decline. I know there's been a few recently, but, but you know, there are strict restrictions and, and, and rules in place for how those stores need to operate, security measures, et cetera. You know, what we're talking about here is, you know, there, there is no requirement by Health Canada regarding security and these things. So these are large grow operations, you know, with you know, hundreds and hundreds of plants. And, you know, of course, you know, they, they are a, a real viable target for, you know, those who are looking to to break in and, and look for the money that's associated with these large grows. Many of them are connected in some way to organized crime. And, you know, so, uh, so it is concerning for us. So, you know, I'm happy on the one side that with legalization, we've, we've eliminated some of those robberies to the, you know, the retail stores and licensed producers, you know, that are, are doing it for retail markets are very strict in how they produce. Um, but this is sort of one area that I think still needs to be addressed. And when you say that they're linked to organized crime in some cases as well, um, are they not kind of heavily fortified with cameras and security? And do they not have measures in place that are meant to keep them from being the targets of crime? Yeah, I mean, you know, certainly our investigators have gone into some of these, you know, grow ops and in, in what we call designated or personal production. So, you know, one house or one facility can have, you know, upwards of four licenses, each license for, you know, hundreds of plants. So you just can understand the scale. And then on top of that, you know, a lot of these production sites will have overgrowing. Um, so they're beyond what they're allowed to grow, they'll grow much more. And that's where we're seeing diversion, you know, of course, into the illegal market, you know, and that's where, um, you know, we really would like those changes. So to your question, yeah, in many cases, we see that they do try to protect themselves, certainly now knowing that, you know, there's there's these individuals going around and targeting uh, these facilities. And, uh, you know, we've seen some very violent um, incidents uh, as a result. And so what action do you think needs to be taken? Is it the cancelling of these licenses or would that not just go back then to completely illegal grow operations? Or how do you kind of see even facilitating an end to these? Yeah, I mean, we've just, you know, on behalf of the Canadian Association of Chiefs of Police, we've advocated to Health Canada that it's time to reconsider the medical model that's in place. 
So, you know, we're five years in almost. We have, you know, a lot of licensed producers who are producing more than enough cannabis that can supply anybody who needs it. Um, People can grow four plants, which can produce up to, you know, about 112 grams per plant. And that's, uh, you know, a plant we'll do four times a year. So, I mean, it's a significant amount. Uh, You know, and look at different options for individuals who, you know, do use cannabis for medical purposes. So we would like to see where we know these are being highly abused, um, the elimination of, you know, personal and designated production licenses and really focus on the model that's in place. And, and the other thing should be noted, these, these medical marijuana grows, there, there's no oversight. So, you know, we are seeing, you know, pesticides and molds and, of course, you know, no security features that are mandated So, and no inspections that are in place with, you know, a licensed producer. So because of that, you know, we would like to tighten that up and really just if someone needs it for medical purposes, they have now multiple ways to access it uh, that way. And why is there no oversight if it's a Health Canada license? You would think, like anything, that would be a licensed from a, fe- a license from a federal agency that there would be checks and balances in place. Yeah. So unfortunately, I mean, they certainly do. You know, look at the applications, and and uh, but you know, there is nobody going to these facilities or these locations, or it's very rare, I should say, uh, and it, to ensure that it complies or or that they're not overgrowing or anything like that. Unlike a licensed producer who you know has very strict rules in place, you know, for supplying the retail market. Uh, you know, so so just you know, for us to be able to tighten that up. Um, so to your question too, is will this now you know? more, you know, illegal source. One of our challenges, Jill, is that, you know, our investigators will go and we know, we hear from neighbors, we have a large smell of, of cannabis in our neighborhood and we know there's a grow hub, but then we find out there's a license to produce. Hmm. Um, so that we don't have the authorization to get a search warrant to go into that house unless we have any information that they're growing more plants than are authorized. So I feel bad, you know, for many people who are living in these neighborhoods who have no recourse when somebody's growing a large amount of plants within their neighborhood and, and we really don't have any tools to go in unless we have some evidence that they're overproducing. And often we only find that out when there's been a home invasion uh, or a grow rip, as we call them, and we find that there's a lot more plants in that facility than they're supposed to be growing. Yeah, and is it too early at this point or has there been any response to that uh, that application or that, that request put in by the chiefs of police? Yeah, so Health Canada has uh, stood up a review and and there is a committee that's been in place. So they have heard our uh, position on this and uh, we are hoping that in the fall that we will hear uh, hear more. And, uh, you know, just really tighten. I mean, you know, the Canadian Chiefs, we we are in support of, you know, of course, legalization of cannabis. It it has, you know, in many ways, you know, been a positive, um, you know, for us. And, you know, but but this is still one area that we do see a concern and we really want to get tightened up. And it's been really highlighted for us when we see these multiple very violent um, grow rips in, our, in the Fraser Valley that uh, are causing us a lot of concern. All right. Well, we will continue watching to see what happens with that. Uh, and Chief Constable, uh, before I let you go, I wanted to ask you as well, you also put out uh, some interesting information in the past few days that after more than three decades, you are going to be retiring. Congratulations. Yeah, thanks, Jill. It's truly been an honor between Vancouver and Abbotsford to to be able to serve, and uh, I'm going to miss it. But uh, I know it's the right time for me and my family. And uh, yeah, I'm looking looking forward to seeing what the future holds. Yeah, I can only imagine too. Uh, 33 years doing uh, that job or or of policing, uh, the things that you must have seen change and experienced, both good and pretty heartbreaking. 
Yeah, no, 100%. Uh, you don't leave this job without a few nicks, that's for sure, And uh, but with tons of friends. And uh, and this community and the communities that I've served have been just amazing. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really proud to have served. I'm proud to, you know, both Vancouver and Abbotsford are incredible. But, uh, yeah, you know when it's time, and uh, it's time for me to step aside and, and let some new ideas come in. All right. Uh, to relax, or do you have new challenges on the horizon? Well, I'm not, I'm not jumping in anything just yet, Jill. I think a fishing boat uh, has uh, probably my name on it somewhere, and uh, we'll, we'll start there, and then we'll see where life takes me. All right. Sounds good. Uh, Chief Constable Sear, thanks so much for your time today. Appreciate it. Thanks, Jill. Take care. You'll likely recall when the funding for Hockey Canada was suspended. Well, we now know the federal government has resumed that funding, saying the organization has met the requirements that were in place. And you'll recall as well the series of allegations about players accused of sexual assault and the reporting, uh, mainly in the Globe and Mail, about the National Equity Fund funds that were used to settle sexual assault claims. Well, that freeze was in place. We heard earlier today from Sport Minister Pascal Saint-Ange saying that that freeze was always going to be temporary and because Hockey Canada has met those three conditions that the funding has been restored. Well, we wanted to get reaction to this and joining us now is Greg Gahuli, lawyer and Graham James assault survivor, also author of the book, I Am Nobody Confronting the Sexually Abusive Coach Who Stole My Life. Greg, thank you for coming back on the show today appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me on. Well, I know uh, we talked with you at length when this story first emerged and we found out about these funds and that's back when the the funding the, the funds with Hockey Canada that's back when the federal funding uh, was frozen. What are your thoughts on the fact that it has now been restored? Well, look, uh, I'm at base a big supporter of Hockey Canada uh, and I I hope that Hockey Canada is doing all the right things and Hockey Canada took positive steps in replacing its uh, chair and uh, board and uh, by all appearances behind the scenes has been doing a lot of good work in trying to build back trust. I guess my concern is that a lot of things are happening behind the scenes and for me real change is going to involve a level of transparency where we can all see what's happening and I don't know about you but I don't necessarily feel that I know very much more today than I knew six months ago. Uh, No, and that's certainly been one of the concerns about this. And I know there have been comments about possible legal action and the fact that courts are involved. So there can't be a whole lot of information in some cases put forward. But I'm not sure that that even sits well with people either. No, especially when we remember that the conditions were put in place because of a fundamental lack of transparency. And, and a failure to do the right thing. It's, it's great that people can point to ongoing litigation as a reason to keep quiet, except that these conditions on the withdrawal of funding and what it would take to get the funding back were very much meant to be tied to transparency. And that's more a show-me, not a trust-me situation. They have to earn back that trust, and they haven't shown us enough yet to have earned that trust. I'm optimistic that these are good people doing the right thing, but I just haven't been shown anything yet. 
And that uh, it came up as well that uh, the parliamentary committee that uh, did uh, the that looked at the executives and that that was holding those hearings with the executives uh, last summer, uh, they passed a motion saying that Hockey Canada must hand over that report of the investigation into those allegations from 2018. But uh, and this is where it came in as well. The, the sport minister said they haven't seen that report again because police are still investigating. But uh, like you said, too, if this is what we're talking about, transparency in general, that's one report. But I mean, that could be held up for years if it's all part of a police investigation. I think what it points to is everybody wants things to be better and everybody just wants the problems to go away and everybody wants to be seen to have doing the right thing. And the problem is, without corresponding facts and actions, we're still no further ahead than we were back when the problems broke. And so I guess my question to the government, and this isn't a Hockey Canada problem, right? Hockey Canada is is doing whatever it's going to do and releasing whatever it is and isn't going to release whatever it is. This issue today falls on the government. Why are you absolving Hockey Canada of having to fulfill these conditions absent demonstrative work that is publicly transparent. If I were the government, I would be holding the big stick that they have over Hockey Canada back until they could show the people that all of the right things had been done, not simply say, well, look, it has been done, trust us. There's no room to just say trust us anymore, anywhere with any of the actors in this situation. And is it because you think we're talking about hockey and Hockey Canada and it is such a high-profile sport, or is it a general culture in sport? I think it's a general culture in sport, but because of hockey's prominent place within the Canadian sporting community, if again, if I were the government, I would be using the hockey situation, the example of Hockey Canada, and setting the bar as high as possible here so that organizations that maybe don't get the same spotlight that Hockey Canada gets, those organizations know that they're going to be held accountable too. If we're going to hold Hockey Canada to account, you know, you're, you're going to have to live up to these standards as well. There will be nowhere to hide, even though no one's looking at you right now. And when we look at the conditions, and again, this from the sport minister saying that Hockey Canada had satisfied those three conditions, and these were to get the funding back, that the organization signed on to abuse-free sport and the Office of the Sport Integrity Commissioner. Uh, it implemented several recommendations from that independent review. It also committed to more frequent reporting to the federal government. Again, not a lot of concrete detail there, but what are your thoughts on those being the three conditions? Uh, Look, they're wonderful conditions, uh, but again, I think we're all going to be saying the same thing over and over again when it it comes to this. Ongoing increased reporting is wonderful once we see what the ongoing increased reporting actually looks like and how much substance there is to it. And right now, all we've got are a bunch of promises to do the right thing, and that puts us no further ahead than we were when everyone, including the last board, when the story broke, they went public and said, okay, we understand, we got it wrong, we're going to do the right thing going forward. And again, I don't mean to slam anybody involved in this. Uh, these are good people at Hockey Canada, and I guarantee you, each and every one of them wants to do the right thing. It just seems to me that the government action was premature, that not enough has been done yet.
And what about the players? Because really it comes down to players as well, the safety of players. I mean, people were horrified when uh, we found out about this secret fund and the payouts that were made from that fund. Uh, we know the allegations of of the attack in uh, the attack, those have not been proven in court, but certainly getting a lot of attention. Does it not all come down to the safety of the players and like you said, a transparent organization? It, it does, but here's where I'm a bit of a contrarian. Remember, I was paid out of, of the funds in question. And and to me, having a fund in place to fund a victim of sexual assault, absent the victim having to go to court and sue for money, that's actually an example of Hockey Canada at its best, doing what organizations of this type should be doing across the board, reserving funds to compensate victims without forcing victims to have to go to court. The problem with Hockey Canada is that it wasn't transparent in how it dealt with the funds. It tried to hide the fact that it was maintaining funds, and so in many ways was taking advantage of members by misleading them into believing that funds like this didn't exist and that part of your membership fee goes towards paying out victims when people do bad things within the hockey world. There should be no shame in Hockey Canada admitting that within its ranks bad things will happen. It's a nationwide national organization, and there will be bad actors and bad behavior and the need to compensate. Hockey Canada should have embraced its very progressive funding of victims, and it, it would have been carrying the day as a crisis. Instead, Hockey Canada ran from it, tried to pretend it didn't happen, and it's the lack of transparency that got Hockey Canada into trouble. And that's why my frustration now sits with the government. There's been nothing transparent truly about why the conditions should be lifted and so i i sit here saying the people at hockey canada are good but but please people in hockey canada and in the federal government show us what good has happened don't just ask us to trust you Right. It's a, that's an interesting point you make as well, uh, because do, do you find when, when you say that, that, that it's a given that bad things are, are going to happen, there are going to be some bad players? And, and I get what you're saying as well, that to, to spare somebody from having to testify or go to court. Uh, but, but I think maybe it's too, is it too naive to think that, that what's really wanted here is the transparency as well as stopping these things from happening? Well, absolutely. And the minute you deviate from transparency, you're hiding a secret. And when you're hiding a secret, it's more difficult for you to say, oh, we've got this problem within the game. Here are the positive steps we need to take to make sure things like this don't happen again. If you're covering up sexual assault, if you're secretly keeping a fund and keeping that information from the public, how do you then come forward and say, well, look, we as an organization are, like the rest of society, facing these problems and we have to take aggressive steps quickly to make sure they don't happen or that we can minimize them as best as possible. The moment you start hiding things and deviate from transparency, it makes it impossible to solve the underlying root problem. So in many ways, that lack of transparency leads to the bigger problem, which is that it perpetuates the abuse and the culture within the game. And that's the problem. What else do you think could be done then in the short term or even the long term to continue reacting or to continue dealing with this? I think that uh, it was in many ways a wonderful time last year when these stories percolated to the top, because as difficult as it was for the people in power at Hockey Canada, and as painful as it was for Hockey Canada leadership to step down, 
there was an opportunity at that time to make positive aggressive change. And positive aggressive change only happens when there's public buy-in throughout the organization and from the membership and the participants across the country to make things better. And my problem with what the government did this weekend and announcing it when it did and and releasing these conditions before we've actually seen what can happen is that it's kind of, let's move on. The circus can move on. There's nothing to see here. It's a great game, and uh, we're going to do all the right things. You have to show the people and get public buy-in for that positive change. And the minute I start seeing these stories fall away and no longer in the headlines, I know that there's no longer the same motivation for positive change, and that's what discourages me. All right. Well, we will continue talking about this and following along with this. Greg, we'll leave it there for today, though. But as always, thank you so much for your time. Oh, you're very welcome. Thanks for having me on today. Have you ever called in sick when you weren't maybe actually sick? I'm sure everyone has done that at least once in their life. Although now you might think it's easier given the new kind of rules that you don't go to work if you are sick, even if it's just a slight case of the sniffles. Well, AI might be changing things completely when it comes to taking a day off when you're not actually all that sick. Andy Burrard joins us now, tech and digital lifestyle expert at handyandymedia.com. Andy, thanks so much for joining us. Hi, Jill. This uh, is a very interesting one because, uh, as I just said, I'm pretty sure at some point in their life, maybe not for a long time, but at some point, everybody has probably called in sick when they were capable of going to work. But how is this, uh, how is AI perhaps changing and being able to make it so you can't do that? Well, Jill, I hope they're not make, uh, looking to make a remake of Ferris Bueller's Day Off because uh, things are gonna, about to change. Um, so researchers, they, they weren't actually studying, you know, if people to do this to see if people are calling in sick uh, when they're not. They're actually using it as a diagnostic tool because we know that now we don't want people coming into work sick. And what they're hoping is that by just l- listening to someone's voice, they're going to be able to tell if a person is sick or not. But at the same token, if if this actually does work and this AI is showing that it does work, over time, if you do try to call in sick, they could probably flag it uh, just by your voice. And I think we all know this. When you get sick, your voice changes. And so now AI is going to be able to detect that inside your voice through some recordings and the before and after. So they need a standard recording of when you're not sick, but then when you do get sick, it can flag it and understand that you are indeed sick. And uh, that's a good way of putting it. And I I guess we're we're a little cynical going straight to the how are people going to be able to uh, still get away with the calling in sick when you're not, it's going to catch it. But are there any concerns about this? Like you said, so it's going to need a recording of your voice when you're healthy and well, then uh, to compare it to to when you're sick. And and, and do, do you look at this and have any concerns about privacy? Well, that's the thing. And and this is becoming the big issue with AI and our voices. And if you don't believe me, just ask the musicians out there because you're starting to see these AI-generated tracks of... Uh, the one that just came out was Drake and The Weeknd. There's a song that's going viral, except it's not them. <laughs> Somebody had a reference track and then you modeled the, the voice based on Drake and The Weeknd and put it into a song. So you have to understand that the music labels are, are having a, a field day with this right now, trying 
trying to prevent this. So you got to look at it at the individual level. Do, does our employer have a right to have you know our, our voice on a database and then be able to flag, hey, you know what, you, you said you're sick, but you know, our AI machine is saying that you're perfectly well, so you're going to have to come in. So there are definitely privacy implications, but it's not just with our voice. This is going to be in everything, even our medical records. Um, researchers can take this and use it. And we know this with AI, because if you look at chat GPT, everyone's using it. They think, oh, this is fun. It's free. But they actually need us to use it because the more that we use it, the better the AI gets. And I think that's going to be the same thing with our voice. Uh, and it's going to have tons of privacy implications in the future. Uh, you make a, an excellent point there. You're, you're right. It, it only is it only grows and it only becomes more honed and more precise the more people use it. That's right. And in this research, when they did this, it was getting scores around 69 to 67%, which is still better than chance, Jill. But we have to remember, this is the worst AI is going to be right now. It's only going to get better. So if it's at 69% right now, just imagine when they feed it more data and more voices, and then it gets better and better. So that's the thing about AI. I, you know, I've never seen some piece of technology that's going to be so disruptive to society other than the internet when it first came out. It's kind of having that kind of feel because things are moving so fast with AI, not just in, you know, uh, chat GPT worlds, but also in the medical world because it's going to be used as a diagnostic tool to flag that someone might have an illness even before they even have those kind of symptoms. AI is going to be able to generate that kind of a of an alert based upon the data that it's getting in. I found it interesting too. So in this particular use of AI, researchers, uh, again, using the voices and comparing a healthy voice in somebody to when uh, they have a sick voice in somebody. And I, I thought it was interesting. So they actually got people to read uh, an Aesop fable. And, and from that, they were able to, again, make it the markers of here's where you're healthy and here's where you're not. But it must be limiting in that your voice doesn't always change. Doesn't it depend what it is that your illness is? Absolutely. You know, maybe for the common cold. And I think we all have experienced that where when we get sick, you, we notice our voice changes or we notice someone else close to us. Uh, you can just hear them and you're like, are you sick? And then they might say, yeah, you know, I'm feeling a little unwell. But what happens if if somebody, you know, the AI gets it wrong? And you are indeed sick and it says you're not sick. So, you know, there's so many different privacy implications, so many ethical considerations moving forward. And it's again and again, you're seeing technology go faster than we could actually get the laws and, you know, the kind of framework of how we're going to use this technology in the future. But one thing is for sure, AI is changing everything and it's going to change the medical field as well. Not only, you know, going and getting like an MRI or getting a, you know, an x-ray, but even the wearables that we have, they've already shown that the wearables can actually detect that we're getting sick or we're getting COVID a couple of days before, just by variations in our resting uh, heart rate or variability in our heart rate. So the AI will be in our wearables soon too. And that, that data might actually get forwarded to our healthcare professionals, you know, in advance, just by hitting some type of hurt certain threshold. And I think that's what gets me excited because we think of AI as being doom and gloom, but you know, the healthcare industry needs to get disrupted. And I think AI can actually help that and cut costs, especially when it comes to diagnosing and, and flagging illnesses um, when they first come on, on board. All right, uh, Andy, we have a caller with a question uh, about this and Tracy is on the line in Surrey. Hey, Tracy. 
Hi, Tracy. Can you hear us? Can you hear me? Yep, there you are. So my question would be, this might work if you have a cold or a flu. But what about all the other things when you're sick, if you're going for cancer treatment, if you broke your leg, like I can't come to work to do my job, I have a broken leg, I'm fine health-wise, but medically. So wouldn't this AI only be if you've got a cold or flu? How do, And then how does it, uh, if you have to, like, again, do the sick day, I don't know, you're recovering from the, the dentist, from a root canal, how does it distinguish like body part instead of your voice when you have a cold or flu. Yeah, that's a good point. The, the, the way that this research is looking at, it is only going to flag if you like have the cold or the flu or maybe COVID. Uh, all those other types of illnesses, it's not going to be able to detect that. However, when you talk about cancer, if you're getting screening, the AI actually might be used to detect the cancer. If, it's, if you're getting a mammogram, it can actually look at it. And this is what a trained professional would be able to determine if they can see you know, a tumor. The AI, you can feed the AI to be able to do that as well. So it's not just you know, if, if it's going to analyze our voice to see if we're sick or we have the flu, but it's going to be used in, in pretty much every field of medicine uh, moving forward. But in this case, again, they're not doing this to try to flag fake people, uh, you know, calling in sick. It's really just try to prevent people or just flagging people. Hey, you might be sick. You probably should stay home. But at the same time, you know, you can't really fake being sick if the AI gets that good. No, that's, that's very, very true. Something you said, though, Andy, and I agree with you, that this is going to disrupt and, and really mix things up when it comes to the medical community. And so many people are wearing the wearables, sleeping with them and analyzing their own sleep patterns and breathing and such. But I would hope, too, like you said, it could go right to your healthcare practitioner or your doctor. But I'm hoping, too, uh, that we still have control over our medical information and that it really only goes if you want it to go to somebody else. Yeah, that's right. You know, when you look at your DNA, they're, they're doing a lot of AI on and analyzing DNA. And, and Jill, I just got my DNA tested on all trying out all these new AI services. And one of the things they ask you is after they get your DNA, you can ask to have it destroyed or you could ask to be used for research. So at the end of the day, the, the individual is going to have control over their DNA or their health records or any kind of diagnostic thing about our health. Uh, we're going to ultimately have control of that. And I think that's really important uh, moving forward with AI. You can't just, we can't just give our data away. And that's even our blood work. You know, you have to be able to consent and opt in. And I think that's going to happen in the future. Can I ask which one you chose to have it destroyed or donated to research? I, I had all mine donated. So I got my blood tested for looking at AI and also my gut biome. So I had to send a stool sample. And um, the results were, were not very good, Jill. I'm going to have to get more variety in, of foods into my diet. And it was all through AI. And I was just like dumbfounded on how great that data that can provide personalized data to your health um, based upon these data sets and then looking at your specific data. And I think that's really something to be excited about moving forward. So you're going to have a healthier diet now because of AI. I need to eat more fermented foods. That's, that's basically <laughs> what I got, the takeaway of that result. All right. Interesting how things are changing. Andy, thanks so much for joining us for talking more about this. Thanks, Jill.